Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and I'm so happy to be back with you for this bonus episode. I got all your comments after season four, email, voice notes, um, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. It's inspired me to do season number five, and we're working on that now. In the meantime, I have this bonus episode for you with my good friend, Barry Pollack, who's a wonderful criminal defense lawyer in Washington, D.C. He's a partner at Kramer 11. He's the former president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He's had tons of high profile cases, including Julian Assange, who he represents now. He won a big Enron trial. And like I said, he's a close friend. We have cases together ourselves. He handled in back-to-back trials a criminal antitrust case in Denver involving chicken and price fixing. And it involved 10 defendants and month-long trials, both, as I said, were hung. Really a crazy case. And you're gonna hear about the ins and outs of those trials, what DOJ antitrust is doing after the second hung trial, and how Barry navigated these two long trials out of town, one of which was during the height of COVID. Um, It's a fun episode, topical, because it's going on right now. The third trial is about to start not involving Barry's client. So I thought it might be interesting for you all who are interested in how our justice system deals with long trials, hung juries, um, antitrust cases, which the public is not used to, and so on. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode of For the Defense. Next. Welcome to the show. We've got Barry Pollack this morning, my good friend and wonderful trial lawyer. Welcome, Barry. Good morning, David. How you doing? Doing great. Um, Glad you could join us to talk about the two chicken trials that you had. Now, you know, in the world of antitrust criminal prosecutions, this was huge news, but a lot of people may not know about these cases. So can can you tell us a little about what the case was about and how you got involved. So the Department of Justice ultimately indicted 14 different executives of uh, the largest chicken producers in the country, including uh, two uh, CEOs uh, of publicly traded of a publicly traded company on an allegation that they engaged in price fixing, criminal antitrust violation. All of these big chicken producers sell to all of the fast food restaurants that we know and love, uh, Chick-fil-A, Popeye's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and all these big uh, fast food restaurants do uh, typically annually purchasing process where they put out a request for proposals and each of the suppliers bids uh, for a a amount and, and volume of chicken for the coming year. And the allegation was that all of these producers colluded with each other and basically fixed the, the bids uh, to so that they would uh, be able to elevate artificially the price of the chicken uh, to all of these fast food restaurants. So my first question then is, how many chicken puns were, were there during the trial? And did you play chicken bingo? Uh, the the puns were endless. Uh, a lot of people thought this prosecution was for the birds. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there really was no end. Uh, ultimately, people just had a cry foul. <laughs> you could go on and on, I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure I could, and I'm sure neither you nor your listeners would want me to. Yeah. So the case gets charged in Denver. Why is it in Denver? 
It's in Denver because one of the big poultry producers, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Pride, which is a publicly traded company, is located in Greeley, Colorado. Okay. And had you ever tried a case in Denver before? I had not. So how do you get involved in, in a Denver case? Through Arkansas. Um, <laughs> my, my, my client uh, was uh, with a, a chicken producer in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, and was represented by a very fine uh, criminal defense lawyer uh, from Northwest Arkansas, in fact, former first assistant U.S. Attorney's Office there, and uh, just an excellent white-collar criminal defense lawyer. But she did not have uh, experience with criminal antitrust cases uh, in particular, and so the company, wanting to make sure that uh, its former executive was well-represented, brought me in, uh, specifically because I've done criminal antitrust matters before. And so the two of us, myself and Wendy Johnson, teamed together and, and tried the case on behalf of, of our defendant. Now, it's crazy, right? You, there's 14 defendants. A lot of times the antitrust division and other, and other divisions of DOJ charge lots of people thinking, you know, of the 14, 13 will plead and they'll all flip. And, and then at the end of the day, you know, the, the one left will plead. But in this case, that those dynamics didn't happen. What what happened here? Yeah. So uh, the Department of Justice originally charged four executives, and they had reached out uh, to Wendy and myself about the possibility of doing a interview with our client prior to that indictment, uh, and they told us that our client was a target of the investigation. We declined to, to do an interview. Uh, and then later, four executives were charged, not including our client. So we were feeling pretty good that uh, this had passed us by, as did everybody else who was not one of those four. Uh, several months later, uh, I, I got a call telling me that there was now a superseding indictment on the public docket. Uh, and they were now charging 10 executives. They had added six defendants without so much as a courtesy phone call uh, to let us know that a new indictment had come down and that it included our client. They then uh, subsequently charged four other executives, but in a separate indictment. Uh, so there were 10 defendants in our case and then four alleged co-conspirators of those 10 uh, charged separately. And David, I agree with you completely. I don't think that the Department of Justice ever contemplated a world where none of those uh, defendants would cooperate and then actually have to go to trial against all of them without having a cooperating witness from among them or, or several cooperating witnesses from among them. So, so I got to ask you about the finding out on the public docket part. Did they arrest your client or did they just call and say that the indictment's public and your guy's charged? Uh, well, they, they did not arrest my client. Uh, they didn't call me before it was filed either. After I had learned about it and read, it, read about it in the media, I, I finally got a phone call from them to make arrangements for his initial appearance. It's insane. I mean, why not give you a buzz before uh, it hits the public docket? Well, when you have the Department of Justice on your show, David, you could ask them. <laughs> I, I, I can't say I ever recall a case where I had been in communication with the Department of Justice. They knew my client was represented by counsel. There was obviously uh, no risk of flight or danger to the community. And yet uh, they didn't uh, even have the courtesy to pick up the phone and, and just left it 
uh, on the public docket for people to, to read about. So 10 defendants in your indictment, all 10 end up going to trial. Nobody pleads, which is very rare. How do you manage a case with 10 defendants, 10 lawyers from all over the place? Um, I'm sure nobody had any egos or wanted to be the, the lead of that group of 10. Yeah, so uh, how do you manage that uh, very carefully? Uh, a couple, I mean, a couple of observations. Uh, you know, first of all, it is remarkable that all ten went to client, uh, went went to trial. Uh, th- th- there is no doubt in my mind uh, that had at any point my client been willing to say that he was involved in this conspiracy and implicate others, he would have gotten a complete pass. And I, I think that that is true of a number of others. And, and so, you know, first of all. Let me just acknowledge and applaud uh, what has to be a a very difficult decision to stand up and face everything that the Department of Justice has to throw against you because you know that you didn't do anything wrong and you're not going to say that you did and you're not going to implicate others. And the the fact that not just my client, but a, a number of people were in that situation, none of them folded to that pressure is extraordinary. Uh, it, it also, it, to me, uh, it really identifies a tremendous flaw in how the Department of Justice approaches these cases uh, it, it generally. I, I mean, the it, it is pretty easy to induce false testimony uh, when that is the dynamic. Uh, you can either face uh, a, a lengthy uh, federal criminal trial with a prospect of a prison sentence, or you can just simply get it get off scot free if you say that you did it, you know, a lot of people are going to opt for door number two, whether it's the truth or or not. Um, you know, in terms of, of managing it, it, it is extraordinarily difficult to manage uh, a 10 defendant trial. I, I, I had never had that experience before. The, the biggest trial I had ever done was five defendants. So this was twice that. And these were defendants that were not similarly situated. Uh, they were at different companies. They ranged from CEOs to sales representatives. Uh, so they definitely had distinct interests. And I, I thought the defense counsel did a remarkable job of making sure that while everybody was zealously representing their own client, they, they were doing it in a way that was mindful of you know whether or not the, the different defendants were working at, at cross purposes. Because of course, there's nothing the government loves better right. than to have one defendant uh, shooting at another Defendant, I think to a large extent we avoided that. In terms of coordination, the uh, the, the lead defendant from the original trial uh, was represented by a very talented team from O'Melveny Myers, uh, re- uh, led by Michael Tubach, and he really did uh, the lion's share of the the quarterbacking. Not just when it was a four defendant case, but then when it evolved into a ten defendant case. And, and is continuing in that role as his client is now facing a, a third trial. And we're going to get to the, the third trial in a second. But so so when there's 10 to, I mean, I popped my head into that courtroom a couple of times. I, I had another uh, matter in Denver and was able to see some of it. I've never seen a courtroom like that before. I mean, it was jammed from wall to wall with lawyers. Um, you know, pre-COVID, it would, it would be eye-opening, but during COVID, it was it was really kind of striking. So a couple questions. One, how did 
you know, the judge and all of you managed during COVID? Did were things different or or was it like a pre-COVID trial? No, it was very much during COVID. Um, the the judge issued a an order that nobody could uh, contract COVID. So uh, <laughs> it, it was largely followed. Uh, in the first trial, there were uh, there were some uh, positives amongst the government team, uh, not uh, their actual trial counsel, but paralegals and others, uh, their support, and they were. They had to uh, obviously isolate and, and be away from the courtroom. Uh, there was at least one occasion because of uh, a Department of Justice's lawyer's exposure to somebody who had tested positive that uh, that lawyer re- uh, appeared remotely for a couple of sessions so as not to be in the courtroom. But the truth is, you know, I think we were very, very fortunate that we did not have more significant issues. We lost one juror due to illness in the first trial. Uh, but had uh, had an alternate that was able to step in, and uh, we managed to get through not one but two lengthy trials during COVID with uh, fairly minimal disruptions. The, the, the hardest part, uh, from my perspective, was everyone was masked in, in the courtroom, including the witnesses. Uh, and I, I, I've certainly never had that experience before and uh, found it very dissatisfactory that uh, you, uh, as as the lawyer, you couldn't completely see the witnesses' expressions. The jury certainly couldn't see the witnesses' expressions. That is something that we objected to. Uh, It was part of the protocol court-wide in in Denver at that time. Our objections fell on deaf deaf ears. And, you know, fortunately, I I will not need to litigate that on appeal. Yeah. You know, I I saw that in in the trial where both the lawyer questioning at the podium and the witness had to wear masks. I mean, it, it isn't like that in a lot of other courtrooms where trials are going on. They let the lawyer at the podium, at least, and the witness take their masks off um, just for that brief moment. It seemed it seemed uh, really odd that that uh, everybody was masked, including the witness and the lawyer. Yeah, I've had this same experience. Uh, you know, typically the witness stand is kind of apart from from everybody else, so there is some social distancing for the witness, and there is an understanding that it is of particular importance that the witness uh, be seen by everybody. Uh, but the way this courtroom was set up, with the number of people, as you mentioned, that were in it, the judge made the determination that he did not feel comfortable from a safety standpoint to have anybody unmasked. Uh, the only uh, the only concession in that regard, in the second trial during voir dire, uh, when the parties were being introduced to the prospective jurors, uh, the judge allowed each defendant and counsel to remove their mask momentarily uh, so that the jury could actually see the, the parties that they were uh, supposed to be saying whether or not they were familiar with. Right, right. So, so we don't wear masks on plane planes anymore, but still, uh, still in federal courtrooms in Denver, I guess. Well, this was before the mask mandate was uh, lifted uh, in pl- on planes either. Uh, so, uh, there very much was that uh, uh, edict. I believe that for the third trial, it, that that edict has been lifted. But at least for both of our trials. 
which uh, started in October for the first trial and ended in March for the second trial. Throughout that entire time, everyone in the courthouse was required to wear a mask at all times. How long was that first trial? Uh, the first trial started October 25th and ended right before Christmas. I see, you know, the Denver judge in your case gave you a start date and an end date, uh, said you will start trial on this date and the trial will be over by this date. I mean, I understand doing that in a one defendant gun case that's going to last less than a week, but with 10 defendants, um, kind of hard to predict and manage that it's going to, you guys are going to be over by a certain date. How, how did that work? Yeah, so in, in both trials, the court did, uh, as you say, before the trial start, uh, give us a schedule and tell us when the trial was going to end. Um, and that is apparently the practice in that courthouse. Uh, I was uh, rather skeptical of it. I, I still to this day don't know what would have happened if, for example, all 10 defendants had decided they wanted to testify. There, there's no way we would have concluded by uh, the set end of the trial. And I, I can't see how the judge can say, well, seven of you have testified, the other three haven't, but we're out of time. Uh, but we just didn't face that situation. In both cases, we were able to conclude by the date that the court had scheduled. So it, it never became an issue. Did any of the defendants testify? Uh, none of the defendants testified in either trial. So that that's really interesting. So let's talk about trial number one. Is there a discussion? Hey, um, is anybody going to be testifying in this case or or is there a joint decision? Nobody's going to testify because there's a lot of competing interests there. Yeah. Well, I, I, obviously, each defendant has to make his own decision about whether or not to testify. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that lawyers can decide for their clients, whether to testify is, is not one of them. And, and so, you know, as a practical matter, even if the lawyers all felt that way, we couldn't just make a joint decision that nobody is going to testify. I think having said that, people were very cognizant of what are the other defendants going to do because it does impact your decision, right? It, sure. If everybody else is going to testify, you feel a lot more pressure to testify than if nobody else is going to testify. And so there were uh, continuing uh, conversations uh, amongst the defense about which way each defendant was leading, leaning. In the first trial, I think it was probably an easier decision than it was in the second trial. The, uh, the government only had one cooperating witness in the first trial. Uh, that witness uh, was not uh, particularly uh, persuasive or credible, at least in my view. And the, the evidence just came in so poorly for the government that, that I think most defendants felt uh, pretty confident that they didn't want to and didn't need to take the risk of uh, going on the stand. I, I, the second trial was was interesting to me because I thought uh, that the government's case came in better in the second trial than it did in the first trial. Uh, they had they had a second cooperator by the time of the second trial, somebody who they had interviewed a dozen times before the first trial and not offered a cooperation deal to. Uh, but did between the first trial and the second trial. Um, and it, even apart from the second cooperator, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of us, I think, learned some lessons about what went well and what didn't went well. And I think the, the government's case came in better in the second trial. That said, I thought the defense case 
came right. in better in the second trial than it did in the first trial. And we also did some things differently. We put on an expert witness in the second trial that we had not put on in the first trial. And, and so the calculus was different in the second trial. Yeah, in, in my mind, the government put on a more uh, a better case. I thought the defense also put on a better case. And at the end of the day, I think we all made the same judgment, which is we, we kind of liked where we were and, and nobody ended up taking the risk of, of, of taking the stand. So in trial number one, I, I want to talk about this because I have never seen <clears throat> anything like this before where they basically called one witness to put in zillions of documents. Um, how did that, I mean, I understand they had a cooperator, but the cooperator wasn't the typical cooperator that you see in a lot of cases. I mean, it really was a document case in trial number one. It seems like that's not the way to go for the government. It was almost exclusively a, a document case. Uh, most of the documents came in without a sponsoring witness. The, the government put in literally hundreds of documents without a sponsoring witness, either under a pretrial ruling uh, that they had established uh, by a preponderance that they were statements in furtherance of the conspiracy or uh, that they were business records or other hearsay exceptions uh, that the documents, uh, once authenticated, could come into evidence. The cooperator in, in the first trial, this is not the typical cooperator, he did not know or have anything to say about half of the defendants. Uh, and, and so it, it, it was almost exclusively a document case. And one of the things to me that is really interesting about criminal antitrust cases is all these facts come in and it's really largely up to the jury to decide what, whether those facts constitute a violation or not. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, the Sherman Act obviously uses incredibly broad terms and unreasonable restraint of trade. Well, what's an unreasonable restraint of trade? You know, this, you could say the same thing about uh, wire fraud or, or mail fraud, you know, scheme to defraud is obviously a very elastic concept. But there you have uh, concepts of somebody has to have the specific intent to defraud and that good faith is an absolute defense. Here, here you don't have that. And in the first trial, the, the government probably spent 90% of the trial time, maybe 95% of the trial time, trying to demonstrate that the different competitors communicated with each other about what they were bidding. Uh, the, the, the problem is, at the end of the day, the jury was instructed that that's not illegal, uh, that, that simply communicating about what you're, you're bidding or intending to bid isn't illegal as long as you're then each making your own independent decision about what to bid. You're not agreeing on what to bid. And... Um, uh, the, the, so the court instructed that, that simply communicating is not enough. Didn't really instruct on what would be enough. Right. Um, and uh, so you had a lot of documents and you had a lot of evidence that there was communication, but really almost no evidence that, that there was an agreement, much less the vast multiple year, multiple defendant agreement that the government had alleged. In the second trial, you know, they did have a second cooperator to try to plug the hole about the fact that the first cooperator didn't even know half the defendants, right. but they still largely had the exact same problem, which, which is their, their evidence 
really only got them so far. And it was largely documentary evidence that there had been discussions about what was going to be bid, but, but really no evidence that there was an agreement about what was going to be bid. And, and the second cooperator didn't give them that. All the second cooperator said was, well, I, I had discussions with the other competitors in a particular year when all of the market forces were uh, indicating that the price was going to go up. Uh, and I had communications in that year with my competitors and they said, yeah, the price is going to go up, but, but no specifics about what amount, no agreement as to an amount. You know, I, I have found the antitrust statute, even for lawyers, so confusing, right? It's, it's hard to imagine how jurors get through it. Like you say, in a fraud case, you know, the government has to prove that someone intended to defraud another person. So, you know, tried to steal from another person, whatever the, the scheme is. And so, you know, it's much easier, I think, for a jury to get through, did the person intend that? Um, did they act in good faith? Did they act in bad faith? There's th Those are much easier concepts, I think. Here, in an antitrust criminal case, it's much more difficult. Um, the question is, was there an agreement to fix prices, let's say? And that's all the jury is asked to analyze, but it's it's never that simple. Um, and and it, it turns out it wasn't as simple in, in either of your trials. What what was the split in trial number one after the verdict comes out that they're hung? So for my client, it was nine to three to acquit. Uh, and that was true for, I think, four of the 10 defendants. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, there were defendants for whom the split was eight to four to convict. And then a couple of defendants who were somewhere between those two extremes. But so if you, you know, if you think about those two extremes and what that tells us is that there were three jurors who um, were, were wanted to convict everybody, right? And there were four jurors who didn't want to convict anybody. Uh, and, and so they're really less than half of the jury, five of them that were in play, Right. You know, half of them uh, looked at this Rorschach test and said, everybody's guilty. The other half of them looked at it and said, everybody's not guilty. And that, of course, is why you ended up with a hung jury. How did you pick the jury to go back to the beginning? Did you have consultants with 10 defendants? How do you decide, hey, we're going to all agree to strike this guy? We're not going to agree to strike this person? I mean, it seems like it'd be a chaotic process. Uh, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it. It, it, it's very difficult to figure out in a 10 defendant case how you're going to exercise your peremptory strikes. Now, you know, if, if you had, say, uh, 20 peremptories, I suppose you could say each defendant gets two. Uh, we did not have a number that was a multiple of 10. Uh, and, you know, even if you did, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out what's the most satisfactory way to to, to do this. Do you really want each uh, striking too. You know what happens if two defendants agree on the same uh, the same perspective juror? Does one of them then get an additional peremptory? The, the way we did it, uh, which um, you know I think is is highly unusual, but you know makes some sense under the circumstances. We basically had each defendant uh, obviously talking to their uh, counsel, and uh, many did have jury consultants kind of rank. The perspective jurors. Uh, if I could only exercise one peremptory, the person I would most want to exercise it against is 
John Smith. My second is, uh, you know, whoever, Jane Doe. And, and, and so we each went through this ranking process. And, and then we had somebody just collate the 10 ballots uh, and, and do a weighted vote uh, to say, you know, which were the jurors that most people felt most strongly about exercising strikes. And, and that's how we went about it. You know, this has always bothered me about about our criminal justice system, but it seems to me that if the government should get one shot to prosecute and convict, and if they can't, that should be it. Now, this is an extreme case. They, they've, had, they've had two shots and haven't done it. But after trial number one, at least as to your client, it's 9-3 for, for not guilty. What's the pitch like to the government after and why do they say no? Well, the, the, the pitch was pretty simple. It was 9-3, not guilty. <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, I, I've never had a case uh, where you had a split like that where the government retried, period. I, I mean, look, look if, it, if it is 11 to 1 to convict and you're the government, you say, all right, well, we got you know one outlier there. If we have another jury, the outcome's going to be different. Here, it's nine to three, you know, you've got to swing three quarters of the jury to get to a unanimous verdict. That seems like a pretty tall order. I mean, even with the eight to four to convict, right. uh, you, you still have to swing a third of the jury. I, I, I was, uh, I, I don't know if I can say surprised because the, the government in this case, to me, seemed overzealous throughout. But, but certainly disappointed that uh, the government decided that they would want to try all 10 again. Uh, they obviously thought having the second cooperator was going to be a game changer uh, in, in a way that even with defendants that were so weighted towards acquittal, uh, they could turn the ship around. Uh, it turned out they were completely wrong about that. We'll talk about that second cooperator in a second, because to me, his testimony was fascinating. And But I want to pause here for a second, uh, because I, I like asking guests about you know advice to young lawyers to become trial lawyers, career paths, and, and the like. You, you know, were the president of NACDL, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Um, you've taught at all the criminal defense colleges and, and so on. How how do you become a trial lawyer these days when there are so few trials? What's your advice to the young lawyers out there? Well, I, I do think it is much harder uh, now than it was uh, when I was a young lawyer to get trial experience in private practice. Uh, it's much easier to get trial experience as an assistant United States attorney, as a federal public defender. But, you know, a case like this shows that, that you can get uh, trial experience in a, in a meaningful way in private practice. I mean, you had 10 defendants all represented by private uh, firms. Obviously, in a case like this, uh, you know, a junior lawyer is not going to be up there doing the key cross-examination or doing an opening or closing. Uh, but you have a front row seat, and it, it's a great opportunity, I think, to really see uh, how a case is put together, how the work that you're doing as a younger lawyer plays itself out in the courtroom, and the opportunity to just watch good trial lawyers do their thing. I mean, you have 10 
different teams of lawyers. We had lawyers from all over the country, uh, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver. And, you know, everybody has a different style. And it was a great lesson in uh, there is no right approach. Uh, you got to find, you know, what is the style that works for you? And we, we, we saw very different uh, lawyering from, you know, certain lawyers from Atlanta versus other lawyers from Los Angeles. And, but all done at the highest level. I mean, everybody was uh, doing something that worked very well for their approach and their style. And to me, as a younger lawyer, that was the, 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 the most helpful thing to me was just to see good lawyers in action. And, you know, you decide what works for you. And, and pretty much everything I do in the courtroom, I've plagiarized from somebody. Uh, you know, I find some piece of what this lawyer does, you know, I could never do in a million years. It was brilliant. I loved it. I could never do it. It just doesn't work for who I am and my personality. But I find something that they do that I say, you know what, I could do that. And, and, and so that's what you do. It's uh, to me, it's kind of cafeteria plan. You you take a little from <laughs> right. column A and a little from column B, and you you piece together what works for you. So when you were a young lawyer, were there were there particular lawyers that you looked up to and watched and and uh, you know followed anyone in particular that comes to mind? Well, well I, I had a just tremendous fortune in, in terms of working with and for some phenomenally talented criminal defense lawyers. Uh, starting with the judge that I clerked for was the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and been in AUSA for years before that and had been on the bench for about 20 years when I clerked for him, knew about as much uh, about criminal trial practice as a person could. And he was very generous with his time. We'd come in after a day in court and he would kind of break down what had happened and what he thought a lawyer had done well and what a, a lawyer had not done done well. So that that was a tremendous experience. Uh, I, I was a law clerk for Plato Kacharis uh, while I was in law school, a uh, famed criminal defense lawyer in, in D.C., uh, who, again, uh, you know, could not have been more generous with his time with younger lawyers. And, and then I started out my first six years in private practice at, at Miller Cassidy, which was a white collar boutique in D.C. Uh, Jack Miller was a, a mentor of mine. Uh, I did my first criminal trial with Stan Mortensen, who to this day may have been the best cross-examiner I've, I've ever seen. Uh, Bill Jeffers was there. Bill, still practicing today, phenomenal lawyer. Bill's the kind of guy he could argue a DWI tomorrow and argue before the Supreme Court the next day and, and everything in between and do it all at an extraordinarily high level, which as you know, is is really remarkable. Most people are really good at one thing, but not necessarily good right. at everything. And Bill was good at everything. So I, I really learned from from the best and, and was very, very lucky in that regard. All right. So let's turn to trial number two. You say they, they decide to call a new cooperator. Now, this cooperator wasn't around in trial number one, in part because before trial number one, I don't think he said there was a conspiracy. Um, so what, what happens with this guy and what does the government do to, to flip him into a uh, witness for trial number two? So uh, they had interviewed this witness probably a dozen times uh, and uh, the, he was with a company that that had amnesty. So uh, he was presumptively under the company's amnesty agreement. 
uh, we had a James hearing before the first trial, you know, where the government gets to try to show that there was a conspiracy. And we actually put this witness on the defense witness list for that hearing. Uh, shortly after we put him on the defense witness list, uh, the government carved him out of his company's amnesty agreement. The, you know, in the antitrust world, the first company that comes in the door and tells them about a conspiracy gets a free pass. And every one of their employees gets a free pass unless the government specifically carves them out of the deal. Uh, here, the, the company had over 100,000 employees. There was exactly one employee who was carved out of the deal. And that was this individual Insane. who was carved out immediately uh, after we named him as a defense witness. So that, that will teach anybody to, to be listed as a defense witness, right? I mean, that's the point. That, that, is, that is the point. And uh, so not surprisingly, uh, this person uh, asserted his Fifth Amendment rights and would not testify at this pretrial hearing and then would not testify at the first trial. Amazing. It's amazing. After the first trial, the, the government... Uh, re-engaged with this individual and had a number of additional proper sessions with him and then ultimately agreed to give him a non-prosecution agreement in return for his testimony. Uh, but his testimony really didn't go uh, meaning meaningfully further than what he had said in the first uh, dozen proper sessions. Uh, and, and so while the government uh, no longer was relying on a single cooperator, and they now had two. And a cooperator could talk. It's a real lesson that quality matters more than quantity. Uh, you know, having two weak cooperators didn't turn out to be that much better for the government than having one weak cooperator. So, one of the things I saw that you switched between trial number one and two is you opened in trial number one, and then you ended up closing in trial number two. You flipped it. Um, any reason for doing it that way or just to switch it up and, and, and change the dynamics? Uh, really just to switch it up a little bit. Um, so as I mentioned, Wendy Johnson and I did this case together. Wendy is a very good and very experienced, uh, very talented criminal defense lawyer. Most of the, the, the other teams, maybe all the other teams, there was a true lead counsel. Uh, for us, there, there really weren't. There, there were two lead counsel. And, and so we just thought it made sense since the way we had divided it in the first trial was that I did the opening and that Wendy did the closing, that we would flip it for the second trial. And, you know, as I said before, each, uh, each lawyer has their own style, their own approach uh, a female lawyer from Northwest Arkansas may approach things differently than a male lawyer from Washington, D.C. And so we thought rather than just giving the government the same thing they saw the first go around, uh, we, we, we'd switch it up a little bit. I loved your closing line about the boxer, I have to say. So, so I'll read it. Um, uh, you said there's a song from the 60s called The Boxer. I don't know if any of you know it. It has a line in it that says a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout this trial, the government has heard what it wants to hear and has disregarded the rest. I love that. Um, I'm going to steal that, Barry, for for my next closing. Um, how is that something you've used before, or just for this case? Uh, well, for, first of all, David, you're you're welcome to it. Uh, the, the royalties are, are relatively <laughs> modest. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and it, it, 
I, I, I have, uh, I've used that once before. Uh, it's not something that I use in every case. Uh, unlike some uh, defense attorneys that have at least a portion of the closing that they just like to give and they give in every case, I, I don't do that. I, I, I do a different closing in every case because I really do believe that every case is different. And in, in this one, to me, it just really fit. Uh, the, the, the government repeatedly um, would highlight a, a portion of a sentence of an email or a text and, and ignore the rest of the sentence. Uh, they, they really did cherry pick the evidence uh, throughout the trial. And one of the devices that the government employed is they had these summary charts. So for, for each bidding episode uh, that was at issue in the case, they would do a summary, what they called a summary chart. But it wasn't what you and I would normally think of as a summary chart where, you know, you've got 5,000 phone calls from phone records and somebody just summarizes there were 22 calls between these two individuals on these dates. The, the, the summary was, uh, you know, here's an email that we think is relevant or here's a sentence from an email that we think is relevant. Uh, and then here's a phone call and, and sort of, you know, the, the summary chart was itself uh, a, in my mind, a closing argument rather than a summary. And uh, the, the fact that the government didn't even want the jury itself to look at the evidence, they wanted to give them these summaries in the hopes that they would go by the summaries and not go by the evidence itself. Uh, to me, demonstrated that the, the the only reason that the government uh, was so zealous about this case is, is they were simply disregarding large portions of the evidence, and, and they wanted the jury to do the same. So your defendant, 10 out of 10, I think, your last up for closing. I mean, by this point, the jury's heard the government closing and nine defense closings. They, they must have been glazed over. How do you keep their attention uh, going for number 11? Well, I was very fortunate in that regard because uh, what had happened was the preceding day, we had had the government's opening close closing argument. And then we had nine of the 10 ah. defense arguments and the judge stopped for the day there. So the next day there'd be one defense argument and one rebuttal close. Uh, it, I, I don't think that that was inadvertent. I mean, the judge didn't sure. say that he was doing that intentionally, but I, I think he probably did see some unfairness in giving the government the last word on that final day all by themselves. And it just how long the closings took, it, it kind of worked uh, to cut it off there. It worked particularly well, I think, for all of the defendants because the the last close on the first day was a very uh, strong, uh, emotionally uh, compelling close, not a bogged down in, in detailed evidence, but really uh, painting uh, in broad pictures what uh, what was going on here, uh, which I think it was generally that lawyer's style and he, he did it exceedingly well, but it probably adjusted it to weight it in that direction, bearing in mind that he was the 10th. Sure. Uh, 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 for that, for that day, the 10th closing argument. But so we ended that day, I thought on, on a really strong note and then got to start the next day fresh, uh, with, with, with my closing. 
And knowing that I was going to go last, you know, I had intentionally done a closing where I was making a lot of points that applied to the government's case in Toto and to all of the defendants, as opposed to uh, a, a closing argument that was solely focused on my client. Obviously, there was a lot of focus on my client, uh, but a lot of it really, I thought, served as a closing argument for all 10 of us. And so it, it worked out extremely well to have mine be the only closing on, on, on day two. So trial number two ends. You're waiting for a verdict. <laughs> Again, all 10 defendants hang. So now we've had two lengthy trials. 10 defendants stick through it. All 10 for 10 go to trial in both cases. And the jury hangs both times. Certainly, they're not going to try it a third time, right? I mean, the judge asks the lawyers, what do you plan on doing? And, and do they take time to think or do they, what, do they come back and say, no, we're, we're going forward number three right away? The, the latter. So, so, so the judge this go around uh, did not inquire about the splits amongst the jury. He immediately, upon declaring the mistrial, asked the government what the government intended to do. And um, all of us could see the mistrial coming. I mean, there, there had been a couple of notes from the jury prior to that indicating that they were having trouble reaching the verdict. At one point, they had said that they, they couldn't reach a verdict. They'd gotten an Allen charge. And, and so it wasn't exactly a shock when they uh, came back and, and announced that they were hopelessly divided and, and the judge declared a mistrial. Uh, it, it was, at least to me, quite surprising the judge's reaction to that. Uh, he, so he asked the government what they intended to do. The government indicated that it intended to try all 10 again. And the, the judge... Uh, is ask them why they thought the result would be any different in a third trial. And quoted from the justice manual, uh, where it says that to take a case to trial, a prosecutor is supposed to uh, believe that there is a probability that he would or she will obtain a conviction. And so the judge said, you, you now had two shots at this. Uh, and you haven't obtained a single conviction in either trial. Uh, essentially, you're 0 for 20 at this point. Right. How can you possibly say that there's a probability that you'll obtain a conviction at a third trial? And uh, the um, there, there, in addition to the trial team, there had been a high-ranking DOJ official who had been sitting in the courtroom every day. So I think the judge knew... Uh, that this case had gotten very high level attention at the Department of Justice. But the judge uh, said that if the government wanted to proceed, uh, he wanted to hear not from a high ranking official in the antitrust division, he wanted to hear from the head of the antitrust division and uh, ordered that the assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division come to his courtroom to, to personally, as the judge put it, look him in the eye and explain to the judge why uh, he believed that they were following the justice manual and that there was a probability of a conviction here, given the results to date. Amazing. Um, and, and between that order and the assistant attorney general coming to Denver, 
the government, I think, realizes it needs to do something. It can't, it can't hold the line on all 10 defendants. Um, so it, it dismisses against your client and five total defendants to leave five defendants for trial number three. Do they communicate with you about that decision-making process or you just find out uh, we're, we're dismissing? Like, like we're, you're, your client's indicted, your client's dismissed. Well, here they, they, they had to communicate with us because, as you know, all they can do is file a motion to dismiss uh, a pending case. They actually need the court uh, to dismiss the case. And, and so I, I think it was two days after uh, the mistrial was declared and the judge had ordered the AAG to appear in Denver, we got an email from the Department of Justice telling us that they intended to file that day a motion to dismiss against our client with prejudice and wanting to know if we would consent to such a motion uh, so they could represent to the court. It was a uh, uncontested motion. Um, rarely has there been a request from the Department of Justice that I had to think about less. Uh, <laughs> so obviously uh, we consented, uh, but we didn't know at that point whether we were the only ones who had gotten such an email, whether all 10 defendants were getting such an email. And so uh, there was, as you can imagine, a flurry of activity amongst the defense camp, but ultimately it shook out. Uh, just as you said, they, they ended up splitting the baby and dismissing against five of the defendants, uh, but uh, saying that they were going to proceed against the remaining five. Uh, and Mr. Cantor did go to Denver and did tell the judge uh, in person that that was what he intended to do, proceed uh, against uh, the remaining five. And about a month from now, those five will be starting what will be their third trial. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about with folks on the podcast is that we don't celebrate the wins enough and we suffer the losses forever. Here you get this dismissal after two long trials. Did you have a huge celebration or are you like me and it's like on to the next case and, and that's it? it you know, it, 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 there's something anticlimactic about getting an email two days <laughs> yes, later right. after you're back home, right? If there had been a not guilty verdict, I am sure that we would have had a large celebration in Denver. Uh, but you get an email two days later after everybody has dispersed to their four corners of the country, just as a practical matter, uh, it was hard in my mind to properly acknowledge all the work that everybody had put into this and uh, just what everybody had gone through, particularly the clients uh, and, and their families and really mark the occasion the way it should be marked. So uh, it's, in not, this too case, I, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not <laughs> too late. You can still do, you can still find time. We need to find well, time to savor these things, you know? Well, well, my, my hope and expectation is that the remaining five will have good news after this third trial, because my heart really does go out to all of them uh, to sure. still be going through this. And uh, the government had no more success against the, the, those five in the first two trials than they did against the five that were dismissed. Uh, the government made its uh, draw the way it made its draw, but um, they're now back in the soup. So I'm hoping that we will have good news coming out of that trial and then we can find a time that all 10 of us can celebrate together. We all hung together for trial. It'd be great for us to all celebrate together. You know, I got I to gotta ask you about sort of the aftermath of 
the AAG going to Denver and, and sort of pitching his case about why they should go forward. And then a few days later, giving a speech and saying he's not part of the chicken shit club. And, and, and you know, those were particular words that he used. Um, it, it was right on the heels of two hung juries, in your case, and also losing two very high-profile antitrust trials, a wage-fixing case and a no-poach case, the first of its kind. And it was so odd to me that he gave this speech right on the heels of going to the judge and saying how deliberate he was in in making this decision to go forward and then saying he's not going to back down and playing Tom Petty's music. It just struck me as um, ill-conceived is the word I think of. Well, of course, the, the, the chicken shit reference is a reference to a book uh, that talked about the uh, criticized, I guess, the Southern District of New York for not being more aggressive in the prosecutions that they they bring, and suggested that you know if you're winning uh, whatever it is, 95, 98 percent of the cases you're bringing, that that means that you're not bringing enough cases or enough difficult cases. You're only bringing slam dunks, and. You know, I, I have a you know real problem with, with that concept to begin with. I mean, the reason they win 95, 98% of their cases is because so much of the process is stacked in the government's favor. Uh, but the answer to that, to me, is not the government ought to bring less and less meritorious cases. Uh, I'd love to see the playing field uh, leveled in a lot of ways, and we could have several separate podcasts on that. Uh, but to me, the, the, the whole notion that somehow you're a chicken shit if, if you're not bringing questionable cases uh, is, is perverse. And so I, I, I personally found it troubling that the AAG was embracing the concept, period, uh, much less in the wake of several high profile failures. And let's face it, it is a failure for the Department of Justice, not just when there's an acquittal, but when they put in the kinds of resources they put in to these two trials and uh, it, they had touted it as, as a marquee prosecution, it had to be the prosecution that they put the most resources in uh, of any case, uh, not only in 2021 and again in 2022. I, I doubt there's been a case they've put those kind of resources in in, in recent history, if, if ever. Uh, how many 10 defendant trials uh, do, do they have? Uh, so in, in the wake of not obtaining any convictions uh, under the antitrust laws in any of those prosecutions, I would hope that would be you know a moment that you're chastened a little bit, that there's some self-reflection. Uh, you know, are we really bringing the right cases? This idea of, of patting ourselves on the back and saying that there's something heroic about uh, using the government's resources, the court's resources, and putting defendants through uh, the uh, process of facing the federal criminal trial multiple times, there's something heroic about doing that and failing, I, I do find particularly troubling. That's a good place for us to end. Trial number three is coming up. Um, and I want to thank you, Barry, for, for talking about this case. And, you know, next time you got to put all your eggs in, in one basket. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some good, uh, some good chicken 
uh, jokes to end with, and of course, I won't come up with any. I I I, I will applaud the effort, and I, I won't accuse you of being a member of the Chicken Shit Club. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Barry. All lies and chess, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards. What an insane case, right? I mean, back-to-back trials, hung juries, all 10 defendants, and then DOJ Antitrust says they're going to go forward with five of the defendants for trial number three. How is that allowed? Our system really needs to figure out a way to fix that. If you ask people on the street, they would say that shouldn't be permitted. And of course, they're right. I mean, going after someone a third time, people don't realize what toll that takes on an individual, a family, a community, the lawyers, the expense, and so on. Well, thank you to Barry Pollock for doing that. We wish the five remaining defendants well in their case. And on to season five, we'll be preparing that shortly. And I wish you all the best over the summer. We'll probably be back towards the end of the year with season five. We may have a few more bonus episodes in between. So thanks for listening. Keep uh, emailing, commenting, following. Appreciate you all. Thanks.